Good morning and welcome. As James mentioned, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 11. As we study this, uh, consider, continue our study through the book of Acts, we want to begin reading once again in verse 19 so that we can keep the thought consistent. Would you stand with me as we write, read this together? Luke, of course, who is the author of the book of Acts, continues his narrative by saying, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue to study your word and to look to its grace and its wisdom and its insights and the understanding that it provides that you would fill our hearts with an ability to grasp these truths and to see how they apply to us on our day-to-day -day basis, Lord. We look for your help in this, Lord. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As is quite typical of Luke's history of the early church in the book of Acts, uh, he begins with geographical descriptions. It's one of those things that's kind of a unique characteristic to his books, both his gospel and the book of Acts. He gives us so many minute details about times and places and people that it's easy to really see the historical connection of the stories. In other words, that they took place in real time and involved real people. And he begins by telling us uh, who these people are or where they ended up as they were scattered. It said, uh, those who had been scattered by the persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia, which would be modern-day Lebanon, to Cyprus, which is the island of Cyprus, uh, still called Cyprus today, off the coast of Lebanon and uh, Turkey, and then on to Antioch. Of these three locations mentioned, it's the third one, Antioch in Syria, that was the largest, both in terms of its size as a city and also of its importance in the ancient world. Uh, it's kind of confusing sometimes when you look at biblical references because at the time there were 16 different towns called Antioch. And so later on we'll find that Paul goes to Antioch of Pisidia, which is a very different place. Uh, in other words, there was a king, Antiochus, who named everything after himself. Hmm. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but... Uh, Antioch of Syria 
was a very large city. It was located 300 miles almost directly north of Jerusalem, and it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was the largest with over a million people, and then there was Alexandria, which had probably three-quarters of a million people, and then finally you had Antioch of Syria with a population of half a million. Now think about it, half a million people not living in high-rises, but spread out over a very large area, something that was hard to sustain in the ancient world. It was, though, a very natural place for these Jewish Christians to flee to. In other words, many of those who fled weren't Hebrews or they weren't part of Judea or the directly native to the Israel people. They were Greeks who had either converted to Judaism or had been raised in Greek communities like Paul had. And when the persecution came against the Christians in Jerusalem, it was primarily focused on these Greek Jewish Uh, converts to Christianity. And they were under great threat, as we understand from Paul's own letters, and they had to flee. And it's natural that they would end up, many of them, in the city of Antioch, not only because it was a large city, but it had a unique quality. Basically, Jews were given full citizenship rights in the city of Antioch, going back to its earliest foundings. And so they could go there with all the rights, the privileges, and and the protections that were available to them as residents of that city. But there was also a large body of Jews who lived in the city as well. So it was a place where they know that they could escape the persecution and could be received by the population, at least the Jewish population, without any real difficulty. Now, uh, which is also why it became really the perfect location for the church to expand in its ministry to reach the non-Jewish world. Now, keep in mind, when these people were fleeing in persecution, their thought wasn't, where can we go to set up shop to continue to spread the gospel? They, like you and I, were just thinking, where can I get out of town before something terrible happens to me? And so they went to a place that they saw as safe. And yet, in many ways, we find that that's how God directs and guides his people to be where they want them to be. Some people will say to me sometimes, well, how do I know that this is where God wants me to be? And my answer is kind of smart-alecky, I admit. But I just simply ask him, well, where are you right now? Well, I'm right here. I said, that must be God's will for you to be here right now. Because if it wasn't, you'd find yourself, through various circumstances, ending up someplace else. And I don't mean that in a, in a superstitious way. I'm, I'm being very, very serious about that. That God, if, if I belong to God and I'm surrendered to what he wants for my life, I will find myself where he wants me to be. That's the reason that Paul could say to the church, I've learned to be content in whatever state or condition or place that I find myself in. Because he was confident wherever I am, it's where God wants me. And so when we think about Paul later in his life being chained to some kind of burly uh, centurion who probably didn't bathe as regular as he liked, and he had to live with this guy with his arm chained to him, and we never find a word of complaint or criticism. There's no grousing or feeling sorry for himself, not a a trace of any self-pity in any of his letters because he believed with all of his heart because of his past experience with Scripture and with the Word of God and the life in Christ. He was convinced to the depth of his being that where he was and the situation he was in is where God wanted him to be. You know, you can never really know contentment and peace in your heart until you come to that 
realization. And I don't mean come to just simply settling for that because some people say, well, you're just asking me to settle for the way things are. Not at all. But what I am saying is that it's only when we begin to realize that we are created for moments that we're in. And God is looking for us to grow to a place where we respond to those moments in a way that actually glorifies his name. And that's where the struggle comes because my will oftentimes collides with what God is trying to accomplish in my life. That I want to be certain places doing certain things. You know, I'll admit to you, I have this kind of fantasy life. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I got into this thing in my head, well, what would I do if I had un, unrestricted income and I could live everywhere and do everything I want and I want you to let you know that I said I would stay right? No, I didn't actually. <laughs> in my dreamscape, I was thinking of all sorts of places around the world with white beaches and I saw myself there and I fit. It was a perfect fit. I knew this was perfect. It doesn't seem to be God's will because I'm not there. But it's easy for us to go into our imaginations and say, if I could have my best life now, this is what it would look like. But there's a deeper question, God, what is your will for my life? That I realized long ago that we, our family is in Spokane because this is where God wants us, even if we didn't know how to pronounce the name properly when we got here. And I think that's important to understand because one of the key principles of real estate, those of you who are in the business know, is location, 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 right? Well, I would suggest to you that the Holy Spirit understands that that's also the principle of evangelism. Location, location, location. Jesus went to Capernaum and made it his city. Why? Because it was on a major crossroads from all parts of the world. So that he came in contact with literally thousands of people every day Something that would not have happened in the backwater of Nazareth, which was hidden in a settle of mountains where it couldn't even be seen from the main road. No, he chose purposely to go into the center of commerce of that region so that he could have direct contact with large numbers of people. And we find the same thing that when God birthed the church, he did it in Jerusalem so that it could be at the center of the Jewish world and touch the Jewish world because the mission was first to go to the Jews and then to go to the Gentiles. And so again, location became everything. And when persecution falls upon the church and they run to Antioch, what do we discover? The church begins to settle and to grow in one of the most important economic and commercial centers, which literally linked with every other part of the world to its various trade routes. That's why Antioch of Syria was one of the most wealthy and populous and important cities, so important that Rome contemplated for many decades to make it the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. It was that important. And as a result... People just migrated there in large numbers. And here's the simple reality is that the gospel is intended to go to where people are. Now, I remember talking with a gentleman many, many years ago, and he was first trying to introduce the idea of doing ministry in Russia. And his argument was this. If you go to Moscow or St. Petersburg or the big cities, that's not really Russia. Real Russia is out in Siberia, it's out in the villages, and the towns, and that's where you need to focus your ministry. And, and I kept on becoming, I mean, you know, maybe I just wasn't spiritual enough, but I thought, but that's not where the people are. <laughs> 
You know, and so eventually we came to realize that if we were going to reach people evangelistically, we needed to go places where there were crowds of people that we could come in contact with and give as much exposure as we possibly could. And it turned out we ended up planting a whole bunch of churches over there. Well, the point is simply this, that the gospel has this interesting dynamic that there's something in us who wants to withdraw and kind of get out of the stress and the pressure and the busyness of the world around us. I mean, large cities can be oppressive places, and oppressive and exhaustive, and sometimes not even very safe. I mean, that's why we're looking to move to Capitol Hill, because I know that we'll be safe there, right? <laughs> well, you get the idea that you just, don't, you just don't go into those kind of places, because they're not necessarily safe places, especially with a mega hat. But the whole point is that at the same time, where are the lost people? And where are the most desperate people? Well, you're not going to find them in the mountains of Montana. Been there, looked, ran from a grizzly. You know, it's like, I, I understand that. It was dangerous, but of the wrong kind. He wasn't open to the gospel. <laughs> God purposely used persecution to reposition the church to a location at the center of the Gentile world that the gospel might spread to Rome in the west, to China in the east, to Egypt in the south, in the, the steppes of Russia today in the north. And that's exactly what we find happening. And it's important for us to understand that this kind of movement is still happening with Christ church today. In fact, uh, Tim Keller in his, his great little book called Jesus the King made the following observation. He says, Christianity's center is always moving on pilgrimage away from the places where it is powerful to those where it is the most powerless and vulnerable. That's a whole, different, whole message just in that idea of the powerless and vulnerable power of the Holy Spirit. But you see, these early fishers of men, if we can call them that, went where the fish were biting. And Antioch, the fishing, was very, very good. In fact, we read the phrases three times it's repeated in our reading. It says, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Great number there literally means that. It's a very large response. A number of people were, were gravitating to the message that was being shared. Again, later on, it says, great people, a number of people, or literally a large quantity were brought to the Lord. And again, the third time, Paul and, and, and uh, Barnabas taught a great number of people. Again, a large quantity of people. In other words, things were really taking off. Things were really happening. And in some way, I feel like I, I need to emphasize or really point out that there is an idea in, in Christianity today that big churches are bad and small churches are good. And I think it's a, it's a ridiculous comparison. I think the reality is that we are either seeking God in, in a meaningful way or we're not. The size is not the, de the determinant. And that's why I find that, um, I remember time speaking at a conference and a guy was pointing out to me that we had a large church and <clears throat> that was a problem. I said, what, what, do you, what, what is your solution? Should I just resign and move away and say I refuse to have a big church? I said, is that the answer? It's not my fault you come. I can't even figure out why you do. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to understand that one of the things when people say, well, God isn't concerned with numbers, he isn't. Because he uses them a lot. 
He tells us that there are multitudes in heaven that are so great they can't be numbered. He told Abraham, you'll have heirs so many that you won't be able to count them. He went through Israel and told us how many were every tribe. I mean, that, that concept, again, is kind of sounds spiritual, but it's not biblical and therefore can't be truly spiritual. God is concerned about numbers. He just doesn't want us to do what David did where he put his ego identity into the numbers and said, look how big we are. Look how many we have. And I find it's instructive that even though we find there were large numbers, they weren't being counted. They weren't counting heads and saying, so our offering this week should be. They just simply said, there was this awakening of the Spirit, this move of the Spirit of God in this place where Christ had never been preached to a group of people who had never thought they would be considered, and suddenly they just started coming. And they came because their soul's needs were being met. As Keller went on to add, he said, the Hellenistic Gentiles who were considered the unwashed barbarians embraced Christianity with such force that soon the center of Christianity moved to Antioch. And it's an interesting dynamic because you may not pick it up right away when you're reading through the text, but that's exactly what happens. Jerusalem becomes less and less important by 70 AD. It's non-existence as it's destroyed by the Romans but the church is still surging in places like Antioch and around the Roman world because God, in anticipation of what was going to happen with Jerusalem, moved the center of the church to this place called Antioch of Syria. Um, and it continued to pump out evangelism and gospels and missionaries for decades, if not hundreds of years after that. In fact, it remained one of the strongest centers of Christianity until the 7th century when the Muslims overran the region and uh, expelled or executed all of the Christians. But it was also here, we're told notably, that the name Christianos was given the growing number of, of Greek converts. We say Christians. It's an interesting word. It's a compound word of Greek and Latin. It takes the Greek word Christus, referring to Christ, the anointed one, and it adds the Latin ending Ianus. And Ianus literally means belonging to or a possession of. In fact, slaves often, if not always, had the Ianus added to the back of their name. In other words, if you were a slave... You had Ianus at the end of your name, indicating to anybody that you met or encountered that you were property of someone else. You did not own yourself. Now, this term was not meant as a compliment when it was first given. To be a slave was to be a non-person. Uh, Livy said that slaves were only living tools, and if you can throw away a hammer, you can throw away a slave. It makes no difference. They have no worth or value. They're merely a piece of property to be used as the owner sees fit. It also meant that you no longer have your original identity. It doesn't matter where you came from or what your name was. You would be given a name with the Ianus on the end of it, and everybody would know from that point that you were a slave and that you were the property of the man whose name you were given, and the Ianus was added to the end. You know, throughout most of history, people were not divided by race or by nationality or ethnicity. There were only two classes of people. There were slaves and free. In fact, we often think that the slaves came exclusively from Africa. But the truth of the matter is that slavery has been widespread around the world and even is so today. Do you know that it's estimated by the United Nations that there are 40 million people today who are living in slavery? 
A third of the population of India, the Dalits, the untouchables as we call, have been taught to refer to them, are actually people who live for the most part in slavery. They have no rights, no privileges, and even their safety is not protected because of the caste system. They're considered to be valueless people. And I've been to the tea plantations. Those of you who love to drink your tea, let me tell you, I've seen the price that's paid to put that on our table. Whole families, generation upon generation, doing nothing else but picking tea leaves off of plants. And they're basically enslaved to the land because the cost of providing a home and food is more than they can make through their labors. And so they can never break free from the cycle. Technically, not a slave. Practically speaking, they are a slave. Like that old song says, I owe my soul to the company store. You find these people are are owned. This is something that's widespread. In fact, do you know where the word slave comes from? It comes from the word Slav. Because the Western Europeans used to capture the Slavic people and enslave them. And in fact, the Arabs captured, held over a million Europeans as slaves. Because in Islam, even today, slavery is still legal. And many of the slaves we find in the world are in the Islamic world. It's not against the law. So we get this concept of slavery being something that's relatively new. It's not relatively new. It's been with mankind. The oldest historical documents have, in fact, the Code of Hammurabi, written in the 13th century before Christ, outlines specifically the rules and regulations for slaves. And let me tell you, it wasn't a bill of rights for slaves. It was a bill of ownership for those who owned them and what they could or could not do. Yet, what the non-Christians considered to be a, a mocking insult, little Christian slaves, the church soon embraced as their true identity. And I really wonder, sometimes I think, how did Paul come up with the concepts that he had? I mean, I know the Holy Spirit spoke to him, but doesn't the Holy Spirit speak to you and me? And sometimes we see something and something clicks and we tie it together and go, oh, wow, that's what God means. I often wonder about that because Paul starts his letter to the Romans by saying what? Paul, a slave. We translate it servant because we don't like the word slave. It's a little too harsh for our senses. But that's literally what he's saying. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, you have to understand, Paul said the preaching of the gospel to the Corinthians was foolishness to those who weren't saved. Can you imagine how foolish it sounded for Paul to introduce himself? Hi, I'm Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. I mean, the Roman would have sat back and go, what? What do you mean you're a slave of Jesus Christ? Paul would have said, let me show you. Because I am a slave of Jesus Christ, he's telling the Romans, I was called or appointed to be an apostle. And I was, as an apostle, I was set apart. My life was taken from where it was and it was placed in a whole new context, a whole new set of definitors. And I became set apart for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, he said, to be an apostle to the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles, the Greeks. That's why we wrote to the Corinthians in chapter six of that book. He said, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Now that phrase was very clear. You were bought in the slave auction. You were in the slave auction of this world and Christ went in and he, with his precious blood, he bought you out of slavery and you became his child, his possession. 
And that's why he says, therefore, honor God with your body. That was the responsibility of a, of a slave. To honor his master with what? With his body. Isn't it interesting, Paul, later on in, in Romans 12, said, present your body as a living sacrifice? See, I, I had to change that in my text. I believe that what it reads is, present your best intentions as sacrifices for Christ. Well, God knows my heart, and the truth of it is, he absolutely does. <laughs> He's not always impressed either. No, it's interesting because there's something very tensel about that, isn't it? Present your body. Your body belongs to him. It's not something that you can use any way you want any more than a slave could decide how he was going to use his life and what he was going to do with his life or her life. You know, I've often said that slaves have certain restrictions. They can't set their hours. They can't set their conditions. They can't set their pay. They can't set their term of service. They just can't do what they want. And most importantly, a slave can't quit. Slaves usually just died in the midst of the service. And later on, one chapter later, he says, you were bought at a price once again. Do not become slaves of men. Do not allow yourself to become enslaved to a people or a person or an organization or a church. You know, it's interesting. Somebody made the comments to me the other day. said, don't you want to teach your, your congregation to love one another? And I thought about that for a long time. I mean, I didn't want to say, no, I want to teach them to hate each other. <laughs> no, you guys got that down already. I don't need, you don't need help with that one. Uh, but I thought about it for a long time, and I finally realized that, no, I don't want to teach my people to love one another. I want to teach them to love God. Because John said, we're all taught by God to love one another. The breakdown of love in the Christian community isn't because we don't talk about loving each other enough. In fact, there are many churches that don't believe in the person of Jesus Christ as being Lord and Savior and Master and all that sort of stuff. They don't even believe the gospel message, but they'll talk about loving other people all the time. But as Christians, our message is to love God and keep his commandments. And at the top of his commandments is love your neighbor as yourself. There has to be the right motivation to create the right response. And sometimes we just blur those things together and as if it doesn't really matter. And yet the whole idea of being enslaved to Christ is a willing enslavement of my life. And that's why, again, in Romans 6, Paul said, Do, not, do you not know you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Is that great, as that great hymn writer of old Bob Dylan once said, you gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. We understand that, that whatever I, Paul would say, whatever I give my members to, towards, whatever I use them for, I become the servant of that object or that person, that thing. The church is at its best when the church is enslaved to the will of God. That when we begin to say, as Madeline Faber so well did many years ago, that pleasing you pleases me. That my greatest pleasure becomes doing what is pleasing in his sight. I know that when I do that, that all things will work together for the good. 
Yet today, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, really, <clears throat> slavery has such a negative connotation, as it should, it's difficult for most Christians to see themselves as God's slave, even being enslaved to God. I mean, a, a concepts like uh, being totally possessed by God is, is almost unthinkable to be, because in the back of my head, I'm going, well, what about my wants? What about my needs? Things like submission or obedience or duty or obligation, selflessness, self-sacrifice, they kind of get lost behind more common modern phrases like, well, I need some me time uh, or I need to have my space or my best life now. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to have private time or to rest and recover and get strengthened. But even those things we recognize as being a kindness of God and a gift of God. This is true even within the church, though I think Christ modeled for us something quite opposite. When, when he said in John 14, he says, I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. I like to believe that a good deal of the time I do what the Father has commanded me. And sometimes I do it exactly as he commanded me, but I don't do it all the time, and I don't do it exactly all the time. That's the battle of the Christian life. That's the struggle of the Christian journey. But as I was trying to share with somebody last night, I said, Here, the thing we have to understand is that when we, get, when we go against God's will for our life, we're just inviting ourselves to add suffering and hardship and difficulty into our life. That when I become so obstinate in wanting what I want without really saying, God, is this what you have for me? That I may actually succeed in getting it and I'll rue the day that I did. And I say that in a generalized sense. I'm sure that many of you understand this concept, but it's so important for us to grasp at the very core of our being that my best place to be is in the place where God has put me. Whether I'm talking about my emotions, when I'm talking about my mentality, when I'm talking about my physical environment or circumstances and sickness and health, even in life and in death. We are to be as Jesus was in the garden in Luke twenty-two forty-two, where he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. To me, the greatest moment of faith in the history of the church was Jesus knowing what lay before him, and yet he submitted himself and said, Father, it's not what I want. It's what you want. It's what you want. That's why Jesus said when he was teaching his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, he told him, he says, this then is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's kind of a way of saying, Lord, that my life would be in synchronization with your will. That what heaven wants, I would live in a way that would be in line with that, would agree with that. Here's the tough part. There are many times in your life and my life, we don't even know if we're doing the right thing. We're stepping out in faith and saying, God, I, I trust this is what you want and I, I'm depending upon you to direct me. But you have to kind of come to a place where you realize that far more important to God than what you do or where you are is that attitude that says, I want to be 
where you want me to be and I want to do what you want to be and I want to do it when you want me to do it. That's more important to me than worrying about whether or not the details around me are lining up the way I think they should. We talked last week about how God oftentimes snatches defeat out of the jaws of victory and vice versa. How God can reverse the order of things as he did with Esther in a moment, instantaneously. What is required is not having the ability to always forecast or know exactly what you should do or what the future holds or how you should act or respond. All that matters is simply to say, God, I am willing to be what you want me to be and help me to figure that out because I'm not very good at it. Years ago, I made a bargain with God. I said, Lord, you know me. I'm dumb, I'm stupid, and I'm deaf. This is who I am. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a dunderhead. I, I don't get it most of the time. I can be so obtuse the obvious, it's embarrassing sometimes. So Lord, you have permission to hit me across the side of the head with a two by four and wake me up. And I got a few dents that would prove that he is faithful to do that. But let me tell you, that is more of concern to God, that your heart is saying, God, I just want what you want. I just want what you want and I'll surrender and yield to it any way you want, any time you want. Which, after this short introduction, <laughs> brings me to Barnabas. As James noted that Barnabas is probably the most overlooked and underrated of all the slaves that Jesus Christ had in the early church. It's surprising how frequently he shows up in the text. 28 times his name is mentioned in the book of Acts between chapter 4 and chapter 15. Uh, five more times Paul makes reference to him in his letters. It becomes very clear that as he's identified, he's referred to in chapter 14 as being an apostle along with Paul. And that tells us that he was probably a key leader within the church from very early on. Very early on, he's given the nickname Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the son of comfort, because he had apparently this uncommon ability to identify and to connect and support and to become really an uncommon encourager of people that he found people who were not likely candidates and he began to pour his life into them and help them mature into the ministers of God's grace and his gospel. Men, I would encourage you to say, men like the Apostle Paul. When he came to Antioch, he says, he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. One translation puts it so wonderfully. He says, he encouraged them to resolve, to resolutely serve the Lord with all of their hearts. To bring them to that place of centrality in their commitment to Christ that all I am concerned about is following him wherever that will lead in whatever circumstances that might create. Luke introduces us, introduces him really in, in his account as, a, as really a counterpoint to the duplicity and greed of Ananias and Sapphira. There's a reason why those two accounts go right hand in hand. He, he comes to the end of chapter four and he says, he sold a field and he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet, not because he was instructed to or commanded to or required to. This was something that was on his heart. He saw the needs of others. He says, I have a resource. I'll liquidate my resource and I'll give it to these people. And I'm not giving that as financial advice, by the way. 
I think sometimes we mistake that. We can use an example like that and say, so what are you doing? You know. But you know, unless you do that, you have no way of ever giving that Gulf, Gulf Stream 4 to, to whisk you from ministry location to ministry location. So I'm just saying, you know. But right after that, it says, and there was a man and woman named Ananias and Sapphira who had a land and sold it and kept back part of the proceeds for themselves and gave the rest to the apostles. And of course, it goes on to show that they probably saw what Barnabas did and they thought, why don't we do that? But we'll keep back part of it so that we won't be insecure in our financial future. And Peter's answer to him is really great. He says, when you sold it, wasn't it your own? <laughs> you could do whatever you want. We weren't asking you to do this. Why did you do this? Because what you've done, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And the real danger of there, if you go back to that study that we did, is it really would begin to spread that leaven of covetousness within the congregation. As if somehow you can buy God's favor by buying the apostles' favor. It's called simony. Purchase of a, of a, of a position spiritual position with money. Well, early traditions, and they are traditions, we can't validate them, but they're interesting because more often than not, traditions do prove out to be accurate. But they tell us that Barnabas was also, like Paul, had been a student under Gamaliel. But when they encountered Christ, Saul and Barnabas went in two different directions. Barnabas became a, a follower of Jesus. Saul continued to reject him. And many of us don't really put this chronology together, but do you realize that, that Paul, Saul, probably heard Jesus teach in Jerusalem? I mean, he, he probably saw Jesus do the miracles. And that's where his attitude towards the church and Christianity was so very, very wicked and so very, very evil. And he was one of those men who was so completely blinded, as Paul would later say, they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Paul was talking about himself. That we're told that Barnabas attempted to share Christ with Paul, but he rejected it. Tradition also tells us that when Jesus sent out first the 12 and then after that 72 apostles to go before him to every city, town, and village in Judea and, and uh, Galilee, that it says in Luke 10 that he appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place, that Barnabas was one of those 72. Undoubtedly, he was in the upper room. He would have been one of those 120 sitting in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. But the part of his life that even gets is more important and gets overlooked is the role that he played in the life of the Apostle Paul. Not just those early encounters, but what we can see within Scripture. That he became, in a sense, a mentor to Paul. Now, we have this kind of idea that Paul kind of grew up like a weed all by himself, and he became fruitful, and nobody ever watered him, fertilized him, or added anything to his life. Not true. This man who's described as a good man, who was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and he says, who brought a great number of people to the Lord. I mean, this guy has an ability to win people for Christ, largely based upon his love and care for people. But it, is, but it says when, when he saw Paul, he saw something in him that other people did. He got, Paul gets saved. He comes back to Jerusalem. And it says in chapter 9, verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. So it's kind of like, you know, you go to Target without a face mask, right? You know the feeling. 
okay? Nobody wants to get near you. They're sure you're a, a spreader. And I was in, you know, as this thing first started, I, my wife and I were going at Trader Joe's and going to the checkout line and <clears throat> the lady behind the counter said, so how's your day going? And I said, well, you know, ever since I got back from China, I can't get around, it's a dry cough. <laughs> the look on her face was, well, for me, it was precious. <laughs> Having been an instigator from my youth, my wife said, oh, can't take you anywhere. She finally got and started laughing. Ha, ha, ha. That's before people started getting sick, but <laughs> nonetheless. But that's, you can picture Paul. I mean, hey, remember Saul of Tarsus? Oh man, do I? Hey, he's back and he's a Christian. Okay, he can go to your synagogue. <laughs> Tell me how that works out. Reminds me when I was a hippie and I'd go to churches and I'd always be invited to leave. Seriously, yeah. Invited to leave. We don't want your kind around here. But it says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And it's the same Barnabas who incorporates him into the ministry in Antioch and that leads him to the place what is called as Paul's first missionary journey. We often think that Paul's first missionary journey was initiated by Paul, but actually Barnabas becomes very clear in chapter 14 is the guy who's really in charge because it says there in verse 12 of Acts 14, Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. You see, Hermes was the voice of Zeus. Zeus was the master god. I saw, saw one statue of Zeus sitting on his throne and he's holding this little tiny figure, winged figure in his hand. And you know who the little figure in his hand is? That's Hermes. <laughs> Gives you kind of an idea of <laughs> what these guys look. I get this picture of, of, you know, Barnabas was probably 6'4 and could have played linebacker, right? He's just this big burly guy, probably a long beard, very regal looking and, and official. And then there's Paul, kind of like that Kibbles and Bits commercial, you know, with a little dog. <laughs> he just, he's the short guy, but he's the one who's doing all the speaking, which is interesting because we're told that he didn't have a very good speaking voice. Go figure. That's why he never had a great radio ministry, much less TV. <sighs> but sadly, what is the most often remembered thing about Barnabas and Paul is their split over John Mark. It says in Acts 15 that sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how are they doing. This beginning of the second missionary journey. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. So suddenly, instead of having one missionary journey, we have two. But what I find really interesting is, you know, uh, when I was Googling all this stuff, you know, the Barnabas and his life, trying to see what other things were out there, I found article after article after article after article about this split. And almost everyone said the same thing. Well, obviously, they supported Paul. He must have been right. And Barnabas should have just deep-sixed that John Mark which means we wouldn't have the gospel of Mark today. Which also means that when Paul later on in Timothy writes to Timothy and says, bring Mark with you because he is helpful for me in the ministry. That what I really think is that Paul was not particularly a patient man. 
He was resolute. He was focused. He was determined. He was undeterrable. But he was also, I think, impatient with men like John Mark who were not wired the way he was. John Mark had a disability. We're told that Barnabas led both him and his mother to Christ. They were probably relatives of his. But he grew up without a father. And sometimes when young men grow up without a father, they're, they're lost to know, how do, I, how do I be a man? How do I live as a man? And it could have been simply that thing that just Barnabas taking him under his wing and walking with him for a season and helping him to grow up in his faith, rather than saying, I don't have time for you as Paul did, was really the nobler part of the story. I often wonder when we get to heaven if we won't have to revise some of our concepts. No, I don't think the, I don't think the scriptures is incorrect, but I think we can draw conclusions that are not really correct. I mean, the history of heresy in the church is fully illustrative of that. But I, that's my personal feeling, my personal belief. Because Barnabas was very different from Paul. He was not as dynamic. He was certainly not as determined. But he was a whole lot more patient and a whole lot more encouraging. That he had some weaknesses that Paul re records in Galatians as well. But he was the kind of guy who could overlook the failures of somebody's past and work with them and to give them an opportunity to change the direction of their life for good. Notably, even eventually, Mark becomes part of Paul's ministry team, as I said in 2 Timothy 4.11. He said, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I say, how needed today are men like Barnabas who, despite someone else's shortcomings, their errors, their stumbles, still sees the potential in them to do great things for God? Isn't it ironic that John Mark, who wrote what we believe the first and the oldest gospel, the template upon which the other three synoptic gospels were written, would be a guy who is introduced to us in the beginning as having run away and deserted the calling because he was afraid? And isn't it wonderful that a guy like Mark would say, I believe in you and I still think you can do great things for God? Yeah, you messed up. Yeah, that was wrong. But God still has a plan for your life. I mean, those kind of people are, are rare, but they are valuable. Keep in mind, that was due to Barnabas, not Paul. That wasn't Paul's work. That was Barnabas's. When I think about the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, I'm reminded of something the former President Obama said that at the time became quite controversial. And, and you know, uh, I had a little trouble accepting it, but the more I reflected on it, the more I thought it is actually very true. He said, if you've been successful, you didn't get there on your own. Somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. A lot of people react and say, wait, wait a minute, I, I've worked hard and I've built this business from scratch and I've done this and I've done that. Yeah, but we're all the product of the people who influence and touch our lives. The banker who says, yeah, I'll take a chance and give you that loan or somebody who says, yeah, I'll rent that building to you or I'll help you with this. There, there's people all along there that came along and helped us to be able to go forward. So I found that this is not only true of our general life, but it's also true in our spiritual life. In our fantasy world of celebrityism and superheroes, we often think that we're supposed to do it all on our own. But even Paul recognized not only 
the role of the Holy Spirit in his ministry is a success. When he says to, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. I received it, I passed it on to you, but anything I accomplished, I know was the grace of God. Yet at the same time, he acknowledges the place that other people played in his life. In writing in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, the body is a unit, and though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. But God has combined the members of the body and has given them greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. See, four times in that passage, Paul addresses attitudes. The attitude, he says, I don't need you. I don't need you. Or again, he says, I don't belong. I'm not part of this. I'm not included. These are attitudes that oftentimes pervade relational dynamics, even within the church. Paul's message was really simple and clear. We all are needed. We all belong. We all play an essential part. Where would Paul have been if it had not been for Barnabas? I know some of you will say, well, God would have found another way. And I, I agree he would have. But was that his perfect will? Was that his perfect plan? Because for Paul, Barnabas was the way forward. That's why three times we find him being taken in as a new believer and, and invited to be part of the church. That's why we find that he is sought out and brought back to Antioch to begin to function as a pastor and a teacher. And that's why we find out eventually he goes on mission and he becomes eventually the apostle to the Gentiles. All of that because of Barnabas and the role he played in his life. Paul's success was built on Barnabas' faithfulness in loving him and in valuing him when oftentimes no one else did. Now, we have to understand that Barnabas also recognized his own limitations in building the church in Antioch. And so that's why he went to Paul. He said, Paul has things that I don't have, and he would be perfect for this. I mean, basically, Paul, number one, he knew the scriptures better than anybody else. I mean, he knew the Bible better than anybody of his generation, a really an amazing accomplishment. But secondly, he was committed to the gospel of grace. He just wasn't a legalist. He understood the gospel of grace more clearly as we can find from his writings than anybody else. He was also well-versed in the thinking of the Greeks he was trying to speak to. You know, one of the most important things in doing mission work, if you will, or evangelism work, is to understand the culture that you're talking to. To be able to frame the gospel not in a different theology, but in a different terminology sometimes so that people can begin to grasp what you're saying. I remember when I was a young Christian and first started doing evangelism all the time. And, you know, I was part of this hippie generation and I'd hitchhike and people would pick me up and you'd jump in the first seat and front seat or the back seat or wherever. Sometimes they didn't have any seats at all. But, and somebody would pull out a joint and say, hey, you want to get high? And I always love that because I say, no, I'm already high. They go, what? What do you got? Oh, something you can't believe. Something that I'm going to high that never ends. And I do this whole high thing, you know. And eventually, they go, well, what is it? It's Jesus. <laughs> but there was always one who would say, 
Can you tell me more about that? Usually that one who had been getting high for so long was so weary of it that they were just looking for something and they'd be the one to go, can, can you tell me more about that? And it's an interesting thing because I don't recommend that approach. Now, I don't, maybe it does work. <laughs> we're kind of back there, aren't we? <laughs> but, but the whole thing is... <laughs> He understood the Greek mind. He had studied the Greek philosophers as Gamaliel required. He could argue with the Athenian philosophers and hold his own. And above and beyond, in addition to all that, he had an intellectual ability to contend with the greater thinkers of his day. There was nobody who could stand toe-to-toe with Paul and not be bested by his verbal alacrity. But I would say to you and me that none of us can do it alone either. I believe that every one of us needs in our life three kinds of people. We need a Paul, someone who can teach and train us in the things of God. Not just the word of God, but the, the things of God, the heart of God. We need a Barnabas who will encourage us in those seasons when we want to give up. Somebody who can remind us of the goodness and the grace of God and just speak that word of encouragement and exhortation in our life that makes us say, you know, I just want to be faithful. I want to continue seeking God with all of my heart. Because let me tell you, most of us have a raft of people who are willing to speak a discouraging word. I mean, I don't know, especially in this negative age and period we're in, there's a lot of conversation about everything is bad and what's wrong with it and all the rest. And it's, it becomes forgotten that God is still on the throne. You know, he's still on the throne. He still rules the universe that we're not just here left to be blown by, around by the, the winds of culture and time and bad government. He's still on the throne. And I need to be encouraged in that fact that he still hears my prayers. He still moves in and through my life. He still can use me for his glory and his kingdom. We need a Paul. We need a Barnabas. And at some point, we're going to need a Timothy, someone whom we can mentor because one day we're going to have to pass the baton. My wife and I were uh, visiting some of our friends over in Post Falls yesterday. And as we were getting back on the freeway, we drove by uh, Chuck Missler's place, the Koinia house that was there for years. And as I'm sitting there driving, I'm thinking to myself, well, Chuck went home to be with the Lord. And, and I realized, well, Chuck Smith went home to be with the Lord. And these were, these were you know, men who were, uh, had a lot of influence on my life. I thought, isn't it interesting that these men came and went and we haven't forgotten them and we haven't even forgotten their contributions, but the memories are getting gray and misty. They, they kind of fade from the screen. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, it'll just be a matter of time before that's you and me. Even with our own family, we'll, we'll kind of fade from the men's, we'll get farther and farther back. I know with my parents, it took me about five years to get over their death completely, but I have to admit, there came a point where I stopped waking up thinking about them. There came a point where I began to think more and more about the future once again, less and less about the past. In other words, this, this terminology means that we're given a responsibility to pass the baton to someone else. You see, our race is not a sprint. It's a relay. And relays are not won by the fastest runner, but by the team that successfully passes the baton. 
the last Olympics, the Chinese team was disqualified because they didn't get the baton passed soon enough. They went through the passing baton zone. There's a zone where you have to pass it. And they went beyond that. They tried to hide it, surprisingly. <laughs> but they were disqualified, even though their time was really good. You know, it was even the atheistic skeptic George Bernard Shaw who understood this kind of concept. He wrote, he said, life is no brief candle to me. It's a sort of splendid torch which I've got hold of for the moment. And I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. Cultures that are beginning to die no longer think of passing a baton. They're consumed with how can I use the baton to bless my life? But they aren't seeing the responsibility of passing it on to the next generation. My question to you is, I mean, who are you preparing to pass the gospel on? Those three questions. Who is teaching and training you in godliness? Who is encouraging you? And who are you mentoring? Now, if you're a parent, it becomes obvious that you're kids. But many times, parents become so busy with survival and the day-to-day -day that the danger is that cutting the lawn can, can become more important than developing our kids as future leaders for the church and for society and the world. One of the downsides of end times eschatology is that kind of convinces people not to think about the future. And that's one of the reasons why I see the same thing that Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. I mean, if you go on the internet or you go on YouTube or anything, it's rife with people are saying, this is it. We're right there. It's coming to the end. And in many ways, I hope they're right. And in many ways, I hope they're not. Because I got a whole long list of family members who do not know Jesus that really trouble me deeply all the time. Lord, don't let... I mean, I have ones I pray for every day. Lord, don't let them leave this world without you <laughs> because they're that close. And... Um, but I, nothing I do will hasten the day of his coming and nothing I do will delay it. But I can control what I do right here. I'm talking to a guy about predestination. He says, well, we're all predestined. I said, let me tell you what I think about predestination. I'm going, I get on a ship in New York City and I'm going to sail to Liverpool. The course and the path of that ship is predestined. The captain is going to direct it and he's not going to listen to my opinions. Hey, can we take a diversion over here? I heard the Titanic can be seen from this point. You know. Hey, let's get close to that iceberg. <laughs> uh, He's not going to pay any attention to anything I have to say. But the whole time I'm on that ship, I have the opportunity. I can be contributing to what's going on or I can take, be taking away from it. I can be a lawbreaker and disobedient and troublemaker or I can be somebody who's encouraging and building up and feeding into people's lives. The ship will arrive when it's destined to arrive and, and I'm on the ship because I'm saved. <laughs> but the point is, I don't know when it arrives. I just want to be ready when it does to get off and have my father meet me 
on the dock and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's what I want my life to come down to. But if that doesn't happen in short order, somebody once put, the church is only one generation from extinction. Only one generation from extinction. It's our job to pass it on by the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts to hear and our minds to absorb that our will might become aligned with yours. We confess, Lord, that we have tremendous opposition. We have the world. We have our own sin nature, and then we have other people who are antithetical to everything you believe, Lord. We have the devil who resists us. I love it that James said, submit to God, resist the devil. Because too many times, Lord, we resist God and we submit to the devil. Help us to get that order right in our life, God, that we might know the joy of the Lord, we might know the peace of God, but we also might be filled with the power of God to be like those in Gentiles in, in Antioch who had said, when Barnabas saw the evidence of the grace of God, which, by the way, we'll talk about next week, God, I just pray that you'd help us to be people who can reveal that evidence in our lives in a way that would make a difference. Save us from the perilous times we're in right now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.